0: Now, it has been a great pleasure and privilege to be with you the last three weeks. I found out on Friday night that it was not all that easy for my host and hostess to have me, that at least their children enjoyed having me, but um, I enjoyed thoroughly being with you again and I hope that God will bless his word to you today. So we're going to pray. Father, we thank thee for the privilege of being here, the privilege of having thy word and of being free to open it and read it. We ask for thy rich blessing, Lord. We would quiet our hearts as we realize that not only are we in the presence of God, but that we are all creatures on the way to eternity. How important, Lord, that everyone here be sure of a home in heaven. And we pray that if any are not sure, that this meeting will result in their trusting Christ and receiving assurance from thy word. Bless thy gospel throughout the world this Lord's day. Help and bless here, we pray, in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Now, would you turn, please, to the book of Isaiah? And we're going to read, first of all, in Isaiah 33. Isaiah 33 and verse 22. For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king, he will save us. Now, many have suggested that with the deep knowledge of the Bible that the founding fathers had, that they may have based our form of government on these three. You will notice judge, lawgiver, and king. So when you're thinking about judge, There is the judicial branch of our government. When you're thinking of a lawgiver, of course, there is the legislative, Congress, the legislative branch of government, and our king is the executive. So uh, in their writings, the Founding Fathers were very conscious that human beings are basically sinful. And they realized that what they needed to do was make sure that they never put power in the hands of one person and consequently never put power in the hands of one division of government. Which is why the division of powers between these three groups was what they envisioned as the safest form of government because they had seen dictatorship and tyranny in Europe and in Britain. Now the New Testament, please, for one more reading, Paul's first letter to Timothy, First Timothy, chapter 1, and verse 15. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying, that is, it is true, and worthy of all acceptation, that is, it deserves to be accepted by all who hear it, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am foremost, I am chief. Now we're looking this afternoon at Ronald Reagan, And um, this is one of the examples of how metered the news is that ever reaches us, because there are things that he said and did that never made the headlines in the stateside newspapers. Ronald Reagan was born on February 6, 1911, in Tempico, Illinois. The uh, apartment that his family had was over a bank. He said they were so poor, that was the only dealings they ever had with the bank, that he was born above it. His mother, Nell, was a godly believer in the Lord Jesus. Um, she would go to uh, sanatoriums, uh, TB sanitariums, and to prisoners behind bars, and to hospitals, and to mental institutions, and she would read the Bible to people. In fact, there was a story of one man who got into a car and uh, hitchhiked, and all of a sudden said to the man, look, just stop and let me out here. He said, I, I have a gun, I was going to rob you. But he said, "Is this woman, Nell... Reagan and what, what she teaches, I, ju- I just can't do it, just let me out. I know it was her influence. Um, she was the single most influential person in her son's life. She almost died in 1918 and 1919 in the influenza epidemics, and as one biographer noted, had that happened, there's an excellent chance Ronald would never have become president. He was deeply spoken to by a book that he read as a little boy. You can find this book online. I've read it online. The title of it is That Printer of Udell's. He called it a wonderful book about a devout, itinerant Christian. And he learned from that book that a Christian should have convictions and be true to them. He should help those in need. He should be obedient to God. He should not be afraid to stand up for what is right and stand against what is wrong. He realized that Christianity was not just for church, but that one should always be faithful to Christ. So he went to his mother, and he said about this book, I want to be like the man in that book. I would like to declare my faith in Christ. I want to be baptized. Years later, he wrote a letter to the author's daughter, and he said, that book had an impact I shall always remember. After reading it and thinking about it for a few days, I went to my mother and told her I wanted to declare my faith and be baptized. We attended the Christian church in Dixon, and I was baptized several days after finishing the book. The term role model was not a familiar term in that time and place, but I realized I had found a role model in that traveling printer whom Harold Bell Wright had brought to life in that book, that printer of Udell. He set me on a course I've tried to follow. Even to this day, I shall always be grateful. Now, if you do read that book, you will find it is an evangelical novel about a young man who is saved and then goes into government and stands against the wrongdoing in the government and makes a huge change in the city where he lives and then goes up to Washington, D.C. to do the same thing there. So you will understand the book really did have a profound impact on him. When Ra- Reagan was in Hollywood, he was giving speeches about the danger of fascism, fascism. The left-wing Hollywood actor groups loved it and gave him hearty, tumultuous applause. One day, a preacher mentioned to Ronald Reagan that there was another dangerous ism out there that he should be aware of, communism. Reagan said, I hadn't given it much thought, but it sounds like a good idea. I'll look into this. The next time, as his audience was applauding like crazy, he ended his speech by saying, now there's another ism out there called Communism, and if I ever find out that it is the same kind of threat fascism is, I'll denounce it just as strongly." There was dead silence, total non-reaction. He said you could hear a pin drop. He had disappointed that Hollywood crowd. He'd stumbled on the leftist naivete and actual sympathy to Communism in Hollywood. Years later, he thanked the man who had given him that wake-up call against Communism, and please remember what that meant for the rest of his life. He became president in 1981, and he served two terms. His belief in the Lord Jesus and the Bible would change not only America, but the world. During the 1980 presidential campaign, former Texas Governor John Connolly met with a group of evangelicals. One asked what he would say to God in order to get into heaven. Mr. Connolly answered, well, my mother was a Methodist, my papa was a Methodist, my grandmother was a Methodist, and I just tell God I ain't any worse than any of the other people that went want to get into heaven. One of the men who was there said, that felt like a stone among these Christians. A little later, Ronald Reagan met with the same group. They asked him the same question. He said, I wouldn't give God any reason for letting me into heaven. I just asked for mercy because of what Jesus Christ did for me at Calvary. And the group said, that's our man. That is our man. When he went to Moscow in 1988, after the meeting is done, tell me if you heard any of this. When he went to Moscow in 1988 for the Moscow summit, he ended numerous statements with, God bless you and God bless the Soviet people. He wanted the Russians to hear the word God coming from the lips of a politician. Reagan thought that he was in what he called a spiritually starved nation, a nation that was very religious before the Bolsheviks declared a 70-year war on religion. So Reagan made sure in his visit that the Russian people heard his religious sentiments as often as possible. His striking religious statements at the summit got virtually no attention from the American secular media. In his opening statements in the Kremlin's majestic St. George's Hall, he stunned those gathered by pausing to deliver this direct salutation to the General Secretary and his comrades. He said, thank you and God bless you. While Americans are accustomed to this, it was unheard of in the officially atheistic Soviet Union, where religious content was prohibited from radio and television something Reagan knew quite well. As his words were translated for all Russians to hear, the hardened Kremlin atheists visibly blanched. Gorbachev's translator, Igor Korshalov, braced himself and, quote, recorded that these words rang like blasphemy to the Soviet officials. The heretofore, I'm still quoting, the heretofore impregnable edifice of communist atheism was being assaulted before their very eyes, end of quote. In talks with Gorbachev, Reagan passionately spoke about the need for religious liberty. Now, long after that, when those official papers were declassified, we found out that religious, the topic and discussion of religious faith occupied one-quarter of all of their discussions, of all of the official notes. In one speech, Reagan said, we may hope that perestroika will be accompanied by a deeper restructuring, a deeper conversion, a mentanaya a change in the heart, and that glasnos, which means giving voice, will also let loose a new chorus of belief singing praise to the God that gave us life. Speaking to students at Moscow State University, whom he saw as the next generation of leaders, Reagan offered an American civics lesson. He said among America's finest freedoms was the freedom of religion. He told students that Americans, quote, are one of the most religious peoples on earth, that if they traveled to any American city, they would encounter dozens of churches, families of every conceivable nationality worshiping together. Why were Americans so religious? He said, because they know that liberty, just as life itself is not earned, but is a gift from God. Now, Reagan preached this in front of a giant bust of Vladimir Lenin which stared down grimly. Lenin had once said more abominable than religion. Reagan later quipped that as the students gave gave him a standing ovation, he turned around and he saw the statue of Lenin weeping. And Reagan was not... Done frequently lobbying for religious freedom. Later that day, in an official state dinner at Spazos House, the U.S. ambassador's residence, Reagan toasted Gorbachev, and then he quoted from the Garden of Gethsemane, and he did a masterly thing. He actually quoted from Boris Pasternak's poem about Gethsemane. So he was quoting a Russian author, and yet bringing in the Bible, and when the Lord Jesus said, put up the sword into the sheath, He said, that is the voice we want to hear. We want to have our swords sheathed rather than drawn against each other. Paul Kengor, author of God and Ronald Reagan, A Spiritual Life, wrote this. There was a good chance that Gorbachev, who to this day insists he is an atheist, had no idea what Reagan was talking about. On the other hand, Reagan knew that Gorbachev's grandmother had read him the Bible as a child. By this point in the summit, it was obvious that the President of the United States was not only on a diplomatic mission, but also on a religious one. The final day of the summit came on June the 2nd, ending with a brief farewell ceremony at St. George's Hall. Reagan's closing words for the umpteenth time were, Thank you, and God bless you. More than any other president, Reagan used his self-deprecating wit and homespun humor to great advantage. For instance, he told about the time he was stumping for votes as a young politician. One man he met did not recognize him. Thinking he would help him realize who he was, Reagan said, "Uh, I'll give you two hints, he said. I'm a Hollywood actor and my initials are R. The man turned around and said, Ma, come quick. Roy Rogers is at the door. In 1966, newly elected California Governor Ronald Reagan, ever the well-dressed gentleman, described a hippie as someone who dresses like Tarzan, has hair like Jane, and smells like Cheetah. In a, ni- a Cheetah is their monkey, by the way. In a 1980 campaign speech, when he was running against Jimmy Carter, he said, recession is when your neighbor loses his job. Depression is when you lose yours. Recovery is when Jimmy Carter loses his. (laughs) Criticizing the removal of prayer and Bible reading from the nation's schools, Reagan frequently said, God isn't dead. We just can't talk to him in the classroom anymore. About abortion, he said, abortion is advocated only by persons who have themselves been born. After the assassination attempt, Reagan rarely went to church as president because he thought it would endanger and burden the entire congregation. Now if his faith were phony, adopted only for political purposes, he could have walked to church with the flashlights and the cameras going and and everybody would have seen a religious president. But as he said to his son, uh, on a flight into California from Washington, D.C., he said, I didn't want some crazy person to come in and hurt people just because he was trying to get me. This was, of course, after the assassination attempt. His son, Michael, said that as the plane was landing, he saw his dad counting. He said, Dad, what are you, what are you doing? He said, I'm just counting. He said, it's, it's nine more months and I will be out of office. And he said, I'll be able to go to church and spend time with the Lord like I used to. Michael said this, when I visited him at George Washington University Medical Center, immediately after the assassination attempt, he told me, Michael, I thought a lot about how close I came to losing my life. Not only would my earthly life have been over, but everything I wanted to do for the American people would have ended right there and then. I believe God spared me for a purpose. Michael, I want you to know that I've decided to commit the rest of my life and the rest of my presidency to God. I remember I was driving from McKeesport home and they closed the turnpike and I had to go on some forsaken Maryland road and it was it was dark, it was it was a winding road, and yet the radio picked up Michael Reagan's speech at the funeral of his father. And what he said was his father gave him a lot of things. Michael was adopted, so he went over in his speech about the things that Michael that, that Ronald Reagan had given to him. But he said the biggest thing of all, the biggest gift of all he gave me is the gift that I know he went to be with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. From Reagan's farewell address, he said, as I walk off into the city streets, a final word to the men and women of the Reagan revolution, the men and women across America who for eight years did the work that brought America back. My friends, we did it. We weren't just marking time. We made a difference. You'd have to have lived then to know the difference that it made. We made a difference. We made the city stronger. We made the city freer. And we left her in good hands. All in all, not bad. Not bad at all. And so goodbye. God bless you. And God bless the United States of America. You know, when he died, I thought, I don't know how you can miss somebody you never met. But I missed President Ronald Reagan. There were a few writers that made a very deep impression on him, Whitaker Chambers and C.S. Lewis especially. But two books had a lifelong impact and effect on him, and consequently, eventually, on the United States of America. Those two books were the Bible, and that printer of Udell's. As I've mentioned, that that uh, later book is filled with gospel truth and references to the word of God. And it is because of the verse that I read to you having a main part in that book that I read from 1 Timothy chapter 1. In the book, the chief character is a young man named Dick Faulkner who is searching for truth. He'd been questioning his employer and others about salvation. And Reagan would have read Faulkner's reaction in these words. This is from the book. All that week, And the week following, Dick's mind fastened itself on the proposition, Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of men. Jesus Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of people. So what I'm going to ask you to think about for a few minutes is just three words. I want you to think, please, about conversion and Calvary. And if we put two words together, then that's four words, the gospel. Conversion is a life-changing moment. Calvary is a life-saving work. And the gospel is a life-giving message. Just those three things. Conversion, a life-changing moment. When a person is truly converted, when a person is, is saved, there are changes which are invariable, they are instantaneous, They are spiritual and invisible, but they happen every time a person is saved. Here they are. The person's road changes. A person is taken from the broad road and placed on the narrow road. No longer is he traveling in the wrong direction from God. The road that seems right to a man, but leads to death. He's off that road. He's off that road. Now again and again, in the parables of the Lord Jesus, he pictured you and me as being travelers. Travelers. And whether it is on one of those two roads or whether it is like the, the, um, the man who fell among thieves as he was going from Jerusalem to Jericho, there are many times where this this picture that we are not static, that we are not standing still. As I am addressing you, the earth is spinning at its equator at a 1,000 miles per hour, I think, and around the sun it goes, spinning on its axis, and then... How conscious are you right now that you're hurtling through space at a fantastic rate of speed. The likelihood is that not one of us thought about that today until I mentioned it. More seriously, we are hurtling through a thing called time on the way to eternity. What road are you on? What road are you on? Because there are only two roads. There's a multiplicity of religions. There's a plethora of ideas that people have. There's all the legions of concepts about this life and the next life, but there's only two roads, Jesus says. So that simplifies things. There's the road we're born on and live on as sinners, the broad way, and then there's the narrow way that a person gets on by being saved, by being converted. Have you a moment in your life when you were saved? Because if you were, then the road changed. and As a result of that, the destiny changed. In a moment's time, a person is as secure as the oldest, most experienced Christian because his safety is the responsibility of the Lord Jesus. Remember the sheep that went astray. And the shepherd goes out after the sheep. And when he finds it, what does he do? Put a leash on it and walk it home? Kick it down the road because of its obstinance and and its tendency to want? What does he do? He picks it up and he puts it on his shoulders. And now, its safety is in his hands. So all the way home, if there are mountains to climb, the sheep's on his shoulders. If there are rivers to ford, the sheep is on his shoulders. If there are wild animals that that, that attack, it's the shepherd that meets that. So the moment that I trusted the Lord Jesus on that July night in 1966, I was as safe and secure for heaven as a person who had already been saved 100 years. Because my safety doesn't depend on me. See, religion tells you, no matter what the religion is, religion will tell you if you want to reach your goal, you need to hold on. And if you let go, you'll be a roadkill. Hold on. Be faithful to the end. Do the best you can. But salvation tells you that Christ takes hold of a person and he does the holding on. He does the securing. And so the road changes. The destiny changes. And then another thing that can't be seen, that changes instantaneously, is that person standing before God. He is now reconciled. He is now forgiven. He is now justified. He's cleared of every charge in the court of heaven. He is now placed as a son, adopted into God's family. He is now made a joint heir with the Lord Jesus. See, if you had been standing outside my bedroom or standing down uh, outside in the yard where my parents were sitting on that blistering hot July night, and you had seen me come through the door and just say to my parents, I, 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 I just got saved. You wouldn't have seen any of this if you looked at me. You wouldn't have seen that the road changed. You wouldn't have been able to look at me and say, oh, he's on the way to heaven now, I can see that. You you wouldn't have been able to to say that. You You wouldn't have detected by how I looked that I was now a child of God, that I was forgiven, that I was justified, that I was an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. See, those things are invisible, but they change immediately the moment a person is saved. Then there are other changes which are variable. And they often depend on other factors, but they're visible. You can see them. For instance, there's the elimination of old habits. The drug addict and the alcoholic are released. The foul-mouthed person begins to change his corrupt speech. The person who stole stops and wants to pay back. The violent person is tamed. And all of a sudden, old habits are dropping off. See? It's like when new life begins to burst in the trees and if there's some old leaves that hung on, what happens is the new life pushes the old leaves out because they're dead. And so a person becomes saved and depending on how old he is and what his lifestyle was like, there are changes that are beginning to become more and more obvious. There was a man in the Pensauken Assembly. He wasn't a platformer wasn't the kind of man that could get up and preach. He was just, if I say a simple brother, I hope you don't take that as a derogatory statement. I mean, he just approached life very simply. He was saved late in life. His wife had been saved years before. She prayed fervently for her husband. And in a gospel meeting one night, in in midlife, see, this man who was an alcoholic trusted Christ. He went home from that meeting Opened the closet where he kept his liquor. Opened the bottles and poured it all down the drain. The next day on the way home from work, he stopped at the bar and he said, what's my tab? How much do I owe you? Oh, Bill, we can carry this. No, what do I owe you? Because I'm not going to be coming back. And he never did. Paid his bills. And that was it. Why? Because his wife told him, you really shouldn't be drinking anymore as a Christian. Why? Pastor Xi, HSI. It's a fascinating reading, if you want to read his biography. Pastor Xi became a marvelous preacher of the gospel in China, having been saved through the preaching of James Hudson Taylor. Pastor Xi was an opium addict in China. You know, the long pipe, the long thing hooked up. there's a called a hookah, actually, and, and, and he, they locked themselves in and, and smoked themselves into basic into oblivion. He handed his servant a key. No matter what I say to you, do not open this door. Went in. The door was locked. And Pastor She went cold turkey and broke the habit and came out to preach the gospel from then on and never went back. What kind of power is this? What kind of power is this that can change a life instantaneously? Where, where, where people go for months and months and months to, to therapists and hash over their problems and, and, and try to break habits. And what kind of a power is it that can take a person and can blow away his old habits? And then on top of that, there is the development of new habits. Perhaps gradually he learns to love the Bible. Perhaps gradually he finds that he wants to speak to God. He wishes that other people become saved just as he is. And it may be a gradual thing, but it begins to happen. Often the lazy or the slovenly obtain a fresh appreciation of the value of time and hard work. They begin to develop integrity. Wherever Christianity has gone and been believed, it is elevated, and enhanced the life of women and men and children, wherever it has gone. Because conversion is a life-changing moment. That's why Voltaire, in in his book, um, The Secularization of the European Mind, Chadwick wrote about Voltaire saying, I want my lawyer, tailor, valet, even my wife, to believe in God. I think that if they do, I shall be robbed less and cheated less. That's a man who did not believe in God himself, but he thought it would be pretty good to have people who handle my money to be saved because they'll cheat me less, they'll rob me less. Conversion is a life-changing experience. While the degree and character of the change may vary, new life must show itself in some way, or there is no life. Calvary is a life-saving work. The Lord Jesus effected the greatest rescue of all time. Acts of heroism and selfless abandon are stirring. When you, when you, hear, when you hear somebody, I just, I just was reading again, you know, we passed the anniversary of that, the, the crash of that plane in Washington, D.C., and the, um, the man in the water, right, in the water, who kept passing the, the ring to others, and by the time they came back to him, he had died. They renamed the bridge for him. And the man who jumped into the water, frigid, frigid, cold, icy, Potomac, jumped into the water to help somebody who was struggling to shore. When you read stories like that, you think to yourself, how noble, how brave, how courageous. But what can match the story of the cross? The Son of God, the Creator, giving himself to rescue sinners from the lowest hell and doing it with the full knowledge that it would cost him his life. Other people tried to save people in the hopes that eventually they will be saved themselves. But he knew that to save you, he would have to die. And yet he came. He did this for the greatest number. Greatest number. Because he died for the world. You know, everybody who's saved used Calvary. Each person who is saved used Calvary in a very personal way. You know, um, I I don't know if you ever saw these, but they uh, used to be somewhat popular 10 or 20 years ago, they would generally be something like about that, just about that big. And it really looked like, if you just looked at it, it really looked like small little pieces of of wood or toothpicks arranged in a bizarre way. And the thing was, you you had to you had to look at the spaces, not at the wood, but at the spaces. And if you looked at the spaces. You saw that those little pieces of wood were arranged in such a way to spell the name Jesus. But you had to actually be very careful to, to, to get that into your head, to get your eyes to focus not on the, the prominent white pieces of wood, but on the empty spaces. Now here's the thing. Once you saw that, you couldn't unsee it. See? Once you got it, you got it. You'd never be fooled again. I don't know whether your mind memorizes that and you know, your brain just just stores that away somewhere. If you see that again, look at the... I, I don't know how that works, but once you saw it, that was it. You got it. That's like Calvary. Once you see that the Lord Jesus died for you, you can't unsee that. See? You can't unsee. I can't think of Calvary without thinking he loved me and he died for me. What, what, what we were all thinking about this morning. But, but this, this view, this global view, this is staggering. This is staggering. There are seven plus billion people alive today. Now I know, I know, I realize that the majority of people have been alive in the relative past and now, more so than in all of history in the past. I realize it's a burgeoning kind of thing that, that's growing geometrically, but you think of the billions of people that have come and gone from this world. And for every last one of them, he went to the cross to die. God was reconciling the world to himself. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the world. He came to save the world. The iniquity of us all was laid on him as God was reconciling the world to himself. He did this at Calvary, the center of two eternities. Oh, looking at this spot, this place, this moment when the mighty creator in the darkness of Golgotha would die so that sinners could live. Because you see, Calvary is the place where he procured the greatest blessing. There are rescue missions set up in cities that provide assistance and deliverance, often very temporary. I, I, I've had the privilege of preaching the gospel at the um Mission in Chicago. And in fact, what we get to speak to is the overflow crowd. There would be a thousand, of ho- a thousand homeless people in the main auditorium. And then the overflow crowd of three or four hundred would be in the room where we were. Pacific Garden Missions. And a man would say to me beforehand, well, the crowd won't be very big tonight. It's a, it's a pleasant night out." But see, if it was bitter cold, they'd be flooded with people who wanted to be in or out of the cold. Not everybody that comes gets delivered. Not everybody that comes takes advantage of the Bible teaching going on there and becomes a Christian. Many of the people working there came as homeless people and, and trusted Christ, and their lives are completely changed. But all I'm saying is here is this, this rescue mission, this deliverance available, but, but not everybody avails himself of it. But at Calvary, the Lord Jesus provided a salvation that is permanent and that is eternal. For every person who trusts him. Because Calvary is a life-saving work. The gospel, it's a life-giving message. If you trusted the gospel today, if you took in, if you, to use Paul's words, if you accepted this message, you would have eternal life today. And you'd never lose it. Because that's what the gospel is. The Gospel is the message that makes salvation accessible. It is the divinely inspired, biblically communicated message telling about God's love and Christ's death for sinners. It is the Gospel that presents to every person the new life that is available through the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that offers peace through his travail and joy, through his grief. That's the gospel message. It's the good news. It's the good news. We live in a world with a lot of bad news and we live in a world with a lot of fake news. Here's good news and as Paul said, it's true. It's faithful. And you should accept it. Because this is the message that makes and gives the assurance of salvation. Now please follow me. I'm almost done. Please follow me on these points. There are some religions that promise their adherents assurance of paradise, if they have done something heroic. If you go murder some innocent people with a bomb in the cause of our faith, then we can assure you that you'll be in paradise. The assurance that the Christian has does not rest on how he dies, but on why Christ died. My assurance of being in heaven rests on what Jesus was doing on that cross. There are some religions that promise adherents paradise if they are faithful long enough. But the Christian's assurance does not depend on his life loyally lived, but Christ's lovingly sacrificed life at Calvary. Now, think what that means. This is why I know today that I'm going to be in heaven when I die. This is how I know. A person could never be instantaneously sure of salvation unless salvation all depended on Jesus. So there I was in my bedroom. It was July the 10th. Philadelphia had set records for heat that 4th of July and it was still broiling in the city. We lived, no air conditioning, forget about that. We lived in a, in a city, we had a tall row house. I'm up on the third floor, I'm on my knees. The Bible was just on the nightstand. I just asked God to please save me from going to hell and a verse came into my mind that I had memorized as a child. So if you're bringing, you're bringing your children to Sunday school and teaching them the Bible, please understand it is of incalculable value because that came right back into my mind. He that believes on the Son has everlasting life. The Son. I told you the other night, whenever I thought about salvation, I always thought about myself. I never thought about Christ. But when that first came into my mind, I thought He's the Savior. Because He died for me. I remember thinking to myself, that can't be salvation. I didn't do anything. I grabbed the Bible and I opened it to John chapter 3, and I looked at the verse, looked at the words right there with my finger tracing it. That's what God said. Now, I knew that moment I was saved. And I could go downstairs and tell my parents, I just got saved. But I could never have known at that moment that I was saved if it depended on how well I lived for the rest of my life. If it depended on anything I was going to do, how could I know then that I would hold on till the end? So a person could never be instantaneously sure. He could only say in a little while, once I see how I am doing, I will perhaps know. But you see, Philip could baptize the Ethiopian treasurer right away, couldn't he? And the people in Jerusalem could be baptized right away, couldn't they? And the Philippian jailer in his house could be baptized immediately. Lydia could be baptized immediately. Why? Because when they said they were saved, they knew it from the word of God. So unless salvation were depending on this book, a person could never be instantaneously sure. And unless salvation depended on this book and on what Christ did, a person could never be fully or finally certain. It would be impossible for anyone to say, no matter how long, He said he was hoping he was saved. It would be impossible for him to say, yes, I am now sure I am saved. He would always have to say, as long as I don't fail tomorrow, I stand a good chance of getting to heaven. Do you understand what this this means? It would turn the gospel into nothing more than any humanly created religion that says, do the best you can, and at the end, hope for the best. My friend... The gospel is a life-giving message. The gospel tells you what Christ has done, what God has said, and what you can now have. Preachers should never draw attention to their families. Would you allow me, please, to make an exception just this once in the three weeks? My oldest daughter had to write a paper for school, high school, and since I was the one who did the proofreading on the English, my wife handled the art and the math, I did the English and the history, I had it to proofread, so this is what she wrote because I kept a copy of it. "Quote: I think the most important part of the interview was the last question. They were actually interviewing the children about their lives and then they had to write their reaction to the interview. She said, I think the most important part of the interview was the last question, however, when we went back to that crucial night in my life, August the fifth, 1993. It forever changed me. Not only did it settle the most important matter a person can face, but it also gave me the opportunity to live a life full of purpose and conviction. When I look around the classroom, I see so many kids floundering, searching desperately for something to latch onto to give themselves the feeling of self-worth and purpose. I have strong convictions, and one of my greatest responsibilities in life is to share with others the truth I have learned. Taking myself back to that night only serves to strengthen my assurance of this. You know what happened that night? She was standing outside of a gospel tent on a small little island called Prince Edward Island. And Mr. Hull, who was a very good friend of my children's, he came up to that circle of girls, he put his hand on um, Peter Ramsey's daughter and on my daughter's shoulder, and he said, which of you girls is going to be saved from going to hell? I had seen very little visible concern on my daughter's part up till that point in those 10 meetings. But when we got back to where we were staying, there was a almost 11-year-old girl who came to me and said, Dad, I want to be saved. I want to be saved. August the 5th, 1993, Forever changed me. This day in February 2018 could forever change you for the better, for the good, and forever change your destiny if you will trust the Savior who died for you. This is a faithful saying. And what a welcome it deserves that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Shall we pray?